Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Sunday, February 25th, 1990, dawned over Richmond International Raceway cold. Very cold, like six below freezing cold with very little relief to hope for. By the time the Pontiac Excitement 400 was to start at noon, thermometers could only reach five degrees. Those incredibly loyal race fans in the stands, as well as crew members on pit road, were in for a very long afternoon. Track bathroom pipes were frozen, so is the food and soft drinks in the concession stands. It hurt to breathe. Skin exposed to the wind and cold felt cracked and dry. It was truly a miserable day for everyone, except for the 36 drivers in the cars on the track. For once in their careers, they loved the heat their engine headers sent into the cars. They had the best seats and the warmest seats in the house. Crew members struggled, occasionally dropping tools from frozen hands while having to re-glue the lug nuts on wheels that didn't stick or nursing air guns that failed during pit stops. Radial tires on the cars took longer to warm, sending Richard Petty, Davey Allison, and Terry Labonte spinning on their own. During practice the day before the race, Dale Earnhardt spun his number three RCR Enterprises Chevrolet, a rare occurrence for the then three-time Cup Series champion. He was forced to go to a backup car, his Kirk Shermerdine-led crew said, just to give them two cases of beer and six pizzas, and they'd have that car converted to a short track race car in no time. Mark Martin scored his second career victory for team owner Jack Roush that weekend, with Earnhardt finishing second. But there was a problem during post-race inspection. NASCAR had an engine rule that allowed two inches between the carburetor and the manifold. At Daytona a week earlier, inspectors granted permission to weld the manifold, making it an inch higher and also have the two-inch space between the carburetor and the manifold. Altogether, it was a three-inch space allowance. When the team arrived at Richmond, Martin's team went to work setting up his car. In their minds, they had three inches to work with. So instead of creating an extra space by welding the manifold, they simply bolted on a two and a half inch spacer. The car passed inspection three times prior to the race, but was ruled illegal after the race. Martin kept the victory, but was penalized 46 points and fined $40,000. At the end of the season, Dale Earnhardt won his fourth title by 24 points over Martin. Even though it was only five degrees in Richmond that day, the chill of not winning the 1990 Cup Series championship felt even colder. Welcome back to a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. A Lifetime in NASCAR highlights NASCAR's illustrious history 
with analysis and anecdotes from a couple of NASCAR historians, namely my buddy Ben White and myself, Jerry Bunkowski. We're going to discuss with you some contemporary NASCAR topics and also everything we've heard throughout the years. You learn about where the sport has been, where it'll go, and the inside scoop on some of the craziest stories you'll ever hear. And Ben, we're going to start off with one crazy story in and of itself. I mean, as we're recording this uh, podcast this week, I'm looking out the window of my bedroom here and uh, or my office, but uh, my call it my office bedroom kind of thing. And it was five above last night here in Chicago. And now it's about maybe 12 degrees, 13 degrees. But that Richmond race that you talked about uh, in your segment, five degrees above. I mean, I, I have to wonder what, you know, what the wind chill was. I don't know if they even recorded wind chills back then, but you know, uh, that was like you said, it was the, the craziest and coldest race you've ever been. Tell, you know, tell us about just how you got through that day. Oh, I'm telling you, Jerry, it was uh, prayer mostly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that's what they question about. It was, a, it was the coldest day of my life, coldest racetrack I've ever been to. And I'm telling you what, it was a beautiful sunny day. I remember that being mm-hmm. there, but uh, just the fact it was five degrees and it was just bitter, bitter cold. As I said in the piece, uh, there was really not much of a concession stand presence there because everything was frozen. I remember that. Soft drinks were frozen. The food <laughs> was frozen. Um it was just, it was just a miserable day. You know, you couldn't get warm. You had, I remember had gloves on, but they didn't help. I had, had long johns on. It seems <laughs> like I know I did. And, uh, the, the warmest coat I could possibly find, uh, the whole weekend, uh, was, was that way. And, and, uh, oh my gosh, it was just one of those bitter days. I remember going in the media center and, and, uh, as you went out of the media center, it's almost like jumping in the, the deepest part of the pool because you would take a really deep breath of warm air and hold it as long as you could out there uh, on pit road. And, and then when you would breathe back in, it would, that cold air would just hurt your lungs. It was just that cold. And then of course you toss in the wind chill. It had to have been 10 or 15 below, uh, zero, zero when you had the wind chill factor. And you think to yourself, why are we doing this? And I remember talking to all the crew guys and some of the drivers. They're like, what are we doing here? Why, why are we racing in these conditions? And, it, you know, it had to have been possibly a TV contract that they had to honor mm-hmm. uh, because we didn't have rain. We didn't have snow. We, we had beautiful conditions to race. It was just bitter, bitter cold. And I've never, ever in my lifetime been that cold. And and I promised myself that day, if I could just ever get through that day, I would probably move to Florida <laughs> or somewhere <laughs> because I'm kidding. I'm not kidding you. It was a really the coldest day I've ever lived in my life. And, and, uh, and as I said, in the piece, the, the 36 guys in the field had, you know, that they, if you could have sold a seat, of those those cars they had the warmest seats because they had the manifolds right and the exhaust under them and normally in a race car that's the hottest on the floorboard because you'd see a lot of times the paint would burn off the bottoms of those floorboards and your feet would get really hot not that day that was the best seat in the house because that you had a warm place to sit and uh, it was terrible I'm sorry I've said it many times in the past three minutes but it was terrible <laughs> horrible well, I, I've got really to ask cold. you, I mean, were you, did you or any of the other reporters around you, 
did they go to NASCAR and say, why didn't they postpone it? Or was, I mean, I remember back then, I mean, that was kind of when I was just starting to get into NASCAR. I mean, I'd been in, you know, following it for the last, for the previous five or six years, um, you know, as a reporter, but, you know, you have to start thinking, you know, common sense here. I mean, do you postpone a race that's that cold or do you go forward? And, and from what I remember in of NASCAR back then, you know, they would not postpone a race unless it was absolutely 110% necessary. And they didn't feel like they needed to postpone it. But I mean, did anybody ever ask any of the NASCAR officials like Bill France Jr. why they decided to go forward with the race? Uh, I don't know, Jerry. I mean, I, I'm sure somebody did. And, and the answer was that they just, you know, they had good conditions and the track was dry and they, I guess that was the answer that they got. But uh, yeah, that that's, that's the, the position they just took on it, that they, the track was raceable. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was just a miserable, uh, cold front that had come through and, and not only did it affect the Richmond area, I, th- I think it affected the whole, uh, East coast mm-hmm. really, because, it was just one of those times where uh, there was no warming up. Really, it was just the, the pipes everywhere was was were frozen. And man, I just you know I can't say enough about that. It was just one of those times where no matter how much coffee you drank, no much no matter no matter where you were, it was just that bone chilling cold that you just. You just wanted to be anywhere, somewhere around the equator. <laughs> you just wanted to be somewhere, somewhere in Florida, somewhere warm. And you, you just, it took you, it seemed like it took a week to get warm enough. But yeah, to answer your question, though, I'm sure that they looked at everything that they needed to look at as far as uh, trying to keep everybody safe and that they made the decision to race. And wow, it was cold. <laughs> and it's it's amazing for me to to even try to fathom that. But I've got to ask you, I mean, we talked before we started taping the, this week's podcast and you said something that I, I wanted to follow up with uh, while we're, you know, we're actually doing the podcast. What about the guys on pit road? I mean, when they were you know, servicing the cars, was there any um, difference for them or, I mean, how did they handle the cold weather when, you know, it came to servicing the car? I mean, were there, were there problems, uh, you know, in any inherent problems due to the weather or it was just business as usual, if you will? Yeah, I think it had to be business as usual for those guys. They just basically, uh, uh, pretty much just had to suck it up and say, look, you know, we got to get through these 400 laps and, and we've got to uh, maybe possibly uh, putting on a second pair of gloves, possibly to to work on the cars. But I do remember some of the teams telling me that the the glue on the lug nuts weren't sticking, and they had oh. to just go the old way. Where a lot of times, you know, you see these um, maybe bolts in the mouths of some of the crew mm-hmm. members uh, back in the '60s, where they have extra lug nuts on these bolts in case mm-hmm. one fell off. Well, they were, I, I do know some of the pit stops were a bit uh, a slower than normal because they had to hand tighten, you know, starting to thread those on, on the, uh, the studs because they were just coming off. They weren't sticking and, and uh, that kind of thing was happening. And, and I know some of the uh, air wrenches were malfunctioning. Some of those little things that were slowing down some of those pit stops, but the radial tires, that was another problem that guys were having too, because uh, as I said in the piece too, I know that Richard Petty, Davey Allison, Terry Levani, some of the others, they were running uh, on that three quarter mile track. And all of a sudden they just spent on their own. And that was why, because the radial tires were not heating up like they yeah. were designed to, 
and um, they would just kind of spin on their own. And and I think Richard Petty, I remember Richard had a rather bad crash in turn four. He was fine, but the car got to beat up pretty badly. And, and it was because the, the, the tires just weren't sticking to the racetrack. Of course, the, the track was very cold. And uh, it, it was, I think the whole entire condition of the weekend was a lot harder. And that's something we didn't ever, hardly ever see was, was Dale Earnhardt crash. Mm-hmm. But he did take that car out and took the whole right side of the car out. And, um, of course, he said, told his crew, said, guys, I'm really sorry. Uh, I didn't mean to crash. He's like, don't worry about it. It was like you couldn't hold it uh, in a turn or even on the straightaways, they were just, they were starting to, the back ends were starting to slide on the cars. But, uh, I do remember that quote being so prominent from Kirk Schumerdine, as I said, in the piece too, he said, in two cases of beer and six pieces and, and we're going to be great and, <laughs> and we can fix it. And, uh, so they did. And, you know, there's a, a front steer car versus a rear steer car. And what I mean by that is where the steering box is not, not that the, the, front tires or rear tires were steering the car. That's not what that means. It's where the steering box is located on the car. Mm -hmm. And so for a super speedway car that they had, uh, which was the Charlotte car, Rockingham car, they had to, to make it do uh, as far as uh, taking it to Richmond. They didn't have any, they didn't dream they were going to have to use it, Mm -hmm. but they did. They pulled it down and, and converged some things on the car and made it workable. And then they were able to finish second with it, but you never, ever saw a Dale Earnhardt crash a car. And that was kind of a first. So everything that weekend was kind of sideways and, and all of us uh, kind of pulled together as crew members, as fans, as media people. And we got through those 400 laps. And then the second part of that story unfolded with Mark Martin. And of course, I'm sure you could kind of get into that with us a little bit too, but how that, that illegal engine or that illegal spacer, how that started. Right, right. But you know, that and that is interesting. I want to go back to Martin in one quick second, but I had one other follow-up to a question about the race itself. You know, when you have weather conditions like that, especially in a place like Richmond, I mean, certainly it's not a area immune from, you know, cold weather or snow or ice. I mean, look what happened on I-95 several days ago, you know, yeah. where all those people were trapped there between Richmond and Washington, D.C. But I mean, you know, I have been at so many uh, NFL games outside, you know, in Chicago, in Green Bay, uh, you know, that were outside and, and temperatures were, you know, uh, you know, five bo- above or even into below zero temperatures. And then the wind chills made it even worse. But I'm curious, uh, what was the fan turnout for that race? And believe it or not, it was rather good. I mean, they, you know, they uh, bundled up like the rest of us and and I got to hand it to you. The fans were phenomenal and coming out they're like, you know, Katie bar the door. We're just coming to the race, no matter what the temperature is. I remember the fan turnout was quite well. I mean, they, the stands were relatively full. I think some of the bottom rows of the track were not filled, but I mean, I remember commenting or thinking to myself, wow, we've got a really good fan turnout here today. And, and, uh, no matter what the temperature was, you know, they were now granted they were bundled up and they had their coffee and their you know, quote antifreeze <laughs> <laughs> that they brought of their own. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was a good turnout. And I remember seeing, you know, a lot of fans had jackets upon jackets on and hoodies and, you know, toboggans and that kind of thing, gloves. <laughs> and I mean, they were, they were there, but like I said, they had their own antifreeze and their thermoses, but the, 
you know, yeah, they were, they were there and, uh, smiles and they're ready to race, but, oh my gosh, it was, um, you gotta, gotta give it to the fans. They wanted to see a race and they were diehard fans that proved it right there. Cause they were, they were there to see a race. Right. Right. Well, let, let's, you know, what, one thing I would love to see, you know, someday, and I, you know, I mean, with NASCAR having the Bush light class clash, uh, at the LA Memorial Coliseum here, uh, coming up here in a couple of weeks, um, that's one big thing about NASCAR kind of going back to its roots. They used to have like stadium racing and that kind of thing. I would love to see at some point a NASCAR race run in snow and ice. I would love to mm-hmm. see. That. I mean, I don't know where you would build a track like that, but I'm willing to bet you that if, if you built a track, let's say, Oh, let's say um, maybe Milwaukee, that'd be a good area. I mean, let's we, yeah. we use Milwaukee mile, even, you know, so a track that's already in existence. If there was snow and ice, I'm willing to bet you that I think that Milwaukee mile seats, I think like 40,000 people, if I remember correctly, I'm willing to bet you that that place will be close to being sold out, even with snow and and ice conditions. I mean, I would just love to see that because that would be like the total antithesis of racing, you know, in the sun, the hot weather. I mean, it it just, it, it, it makes you start thinking these, these kind of crazy things. Maybe I've been out in the the cold too much the last few days. I don't know, but I mean, it's just something I would love to see, you know? Yeah, well, you know what? Now, I, if I, I think I'm telling this correctly, you know, Paul Menard, who is no longer driving in the Cup Series, but now he he has actually raced in some snowmobile races. Yes, yes. Up, up in I think in Wisconsin and Eagle so, River, right? Exactly. Right. Yeah, and so there is there is a market for that, and there's some drivers that that really put their heart and soul into some snowmobile racing. And hey, there, you know, so there you go. I, I, that's the only form of snow racing I know of, but now, with that said, though, I'm sure somebody up there, maybe in Alaska, has got some <laughs> some racing going on with some on, on ice. And hey, I, I'm all for it. You know, but I'm not a fan of cold. I'm not. <laughs> and after that Richmond race, it did me in. So, right. <laughs> but hey, you know, if you could figure out a way to race on ice and still be warm, I'm there. That's right. Well, you know, you mentioned Menard in the snowmobile race uh, in Eagle River, Wisconsin, which is up. Uh, it's pretty up there in the northern part of the state. They, I think, they still do it every year. Uh, I know they were doing it in the '80s and '90s. In fact, I, I did a couple of stories uh, when I was with USA Today back in the '80s and '90s about people, you know, famous racers who went up there. Mm-hmm. And among those racers were L, the, well, now the late. Al Unzer Sr. and his brother, the late Bobby Unzer, they raced there. And Al Jr. even went up there a mm-hmm. few times to race. And um, there's somebody else. I'm, I, the, my, my mind is is just uh, glitzing on, uh, you know, there was one other named driver that went up there to race. And I can't remember who it was, but, you know, they they had a fun time. I mean, like you said, they had a lot of antifreeze in their uh, <coughs> thermoses. But, you know, yeah. but yeah, I mean, it's it's it was a fun thing. But I would love to see, I mean, we've had racing on the beach. Why not racing in the snow? I just think sure. it would be kind of cool. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and it wasn't the green stuff either. That's <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so. All right, let's get back to what we were talking about. You talking about Mark Martin at, at Richmond in that particular race, you know, uh, the weather notwithstanding, you know, Mark uh, comes out of there with one of the biggest penalties NASCAR uh, up to that point had ever assessed. Mm-hmm. Tell us about what happened in the penalty and, you know, the ultimate um, impact upon him and his, his bid for the championship later that season. Sure. Yeah, Jerry. Well, what happened was, the week before, uh, NASCAR was allowing the teams to to weld the the manifold uh, with a spacer, and then that was okay there. And then when they get to Richmond, 
that was not the case. Uh, actually, what they were trying to do, if I can explain this correctly, they were allowing them to have a, a three-inch space allowance above the engine. Uh, and then when they get to Richmond, it wasn't allowed, and they had half, a half inch too much under the above the engine, above, uh, but uh, below the air cooler, mm-hmm. or and that was deemed illegal, even though they went through inspection uh, three separate times prior to the race. And then when the race was over, they said it was illegal. So as it turned out, there was a forty thousand dollar fine and a loss of forty six points. At the end of the year, Dale Earnhardt wins the uh, 1990 Winston Cup Championship, which is now the Cup Series. And had that not happened, uh, Mark Martin could have won the championship that year. Uh, so, yeah, and, and ironically, Mark Martin finished second in the in the Cup Series points standings five times during mm-hmm. his career, but could never cross over the bar and, and get the championship. So that was probably the closest he got to it. But that one instance there in Richmond uh, was, uh, I, you know, the one telltale sign, I guess, that it, it, it went against him and in, mm-hmm. uh, in that one race and. You know, it's, it's, that one is still, I, I guess, kind of gets in Jack Roush's call a little bit, you know, because he just, you know, you, in all essence, I mean, three times they went through inspection, it was okay. And then after the race, it wasn't okay. Right. Right. And so, you know, and, and no disrespect to his crew, but I mean, they're like, okay, you said it was all right. So we start working on the car and getting, getting the car set up. And then after the race, they're like, well, hold the phone. It's not right. So what is it? But at the end of the day, they said, no, you can't do that. And, and the fine comes down, the loss of points come down, and that's the way it was. So what side of the fence are you on here? I mean, right. that's the question. Correct me if I'm wrong, Ben. Wasn't there, you know, after that whole ruling came out back then, if memory serves me correctly, there was like a massive um, effort by by Jack to try to overturn that, uh, you know, more so than I think most other penalties we've seen. Uh, I don't remember all the specifics, but I mean, I know that lawyers got involved and, you know, all that kind of stuff um, that it, 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 it was, you know, it took a long time, like you said, for Jack to kind of accept it and still is in his crowd to this day, like you said. But, you know, the fact that it was, from what I remember, it was a pretty contentious um appeal do you remember all that yeah. stuff yeah i do and and uh yeah it went on for quite a while if our my memory serves me correctly and and finally it just kind of went to the wayside because uh i mean i don't know it he i think he finally just well, i won't say accepted it but accepted where where he stood maybe but yeah it you know it I don't know the I don't know the exact ruling on it or where it ended up, but yeah, it was, and I sort of see the point there. It's like again, what I said before, you know, when you go through inspection three times, and it's it doesn't it's nothing to said about it, and then when you win the race, it's there's something is said about it. Um, so if I'm a team owner, I'm like, well, hold up, hold on, you know, you said it's okay these other three times that you looked at it and you look at every aspect of the car when you mm-hmm. go through inspection and, and nothing said. And then when I win the race, this, this is when you bring it up. So, 
Yeah. It's, it's, I'm, I'm sure it's something that he still thinks about. And I'm sure it's something that Mark still thinks about, even though Mark's been out of the picture since what, 2013 now, but, uh, it's just one of those things that they, they contested and it didn't go their way. And, uh, you know, you, I guess you have to live with it, but yeah. I, I agree with, you know, I agree with, uh, and, th- and let me say this too, though. I mean, when they, when they were, uh, talked to at post-race inspection, Steve Mill and Robert Pemberton and Jack Roush and Mark Martin, they, okay. They said, this is not the way they want to play the game, or this is not what NASCAR wants to do here. So we accept what they're telling us. Okay. They were very gentlemanly about it and respectful mm-hmm. about it. Um, so I, you gotta give, you gotta take, you know, give them credit for that. I mean, they, they were very, uh, classy about the way they handled it and Roush Ration was, right. but it's still, it's still something that's out there. And, and, um, uh, I, I don't know what the answer to it is other than the fact that you have, I guess you just have to accept it. And what has it been? 30, 32 years. years? Yeah. February 25th yeah. will be 32 years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it's, but I, I sort of see where they're coming from. It's like you, again, not to beat a dead horse here, but you, you let us three, three times. And then when we end the, we win the race and it's not okay. So I, I agree with them. It's like, you let us go three times and no, it's not okay. Isn't there also an irony that, um, and again, I don't have a, the, the stats in front of me, but correct me if I'm wrong. Ma- um, uh, Mark did manage to, con- he kept the win, didn't he? I, I don't think yes. he was qualified, right? No, he did keep the win. And that's, that's kind of been a NASCAR policy. Uh, the only time I, yeah, yeah. The only time I know that that wasn't held up was I believe 1992 when Davy Allison and Ricky Rudd got into a confrontation at Sonoma Mm -hmm. and Ricky on the last lap, next to last lap spun Davy, uh, for the win, which that's kind of what, you know, that's the way it was done. Uh, you know, in the heat of action, I mean, you, you see that kind of thing has happened when you put a fender to someone and then, uh, and uh, again, in the last lap or two of a race. And then at the end of the day, uh, NASCAR gave the win to Davey, not to Ricky. And that's, I mean, if you were, I don't know if you recall that, but it was, that's the only time I've ever seen it reversed. And, uh, so, but, but other times when a driver had had an illegal engine, it, the driver normally would keep the win, but be fined and taken points away. Mm-hmm. That's right. been NASCAR's policy because the, and, the, and what they've said in years past is that we want the fans to know who won the race when they, uh, when they've left the racetrack. Now right. in times when you have a problem, uh, as far as scoring goes, you would have the next day, it's very possible that you would have a different winner because mm-hmm. of scoring but not, uh, not of, a, of an illegal nature with say the car or something to that effect, you would still have, uh, the same winner, but you, uh, you might, you might, they might be fined, you know, money and points, that kind of thing. Exactly. That sense. Exactly. Yeah. All right, let's move on to our next segment. And again, this is episode number 46 of a lifetime in NASCAR and Ben, you know, obviously, Ben is the answer, man. If you have any questions, you know, he is a man to go to and and he has some great stories. So speaking of uh, episode 46, we also 
always tie the episode number in with the car number 40. You know, it's like in this case, it'll be car number 46. And, you know, car number 46 has got has had a somewhat unusual history because of a movie, believe it or not. And we'll, Ben will get into that in a moment here. But, you know, um, you know, it's not been a extremely successful car number when it comes to wins uh, you know there's only been what's uh let's see i'm counting here 11 wins since 1949 ben tell us a little bit more about the number 46 in its history and then we'll get into about the, the how this whole movie deal uh really shaped uh, and and re- reshaped the career of one of nascar's greatest drivers afterwards yeah sure will well uh the number 46 in NASCAR history, actually, if you want to know the first person, good place to start here. The first person who ran number 46 was a gentleman from High Point, North Carolina. His name was Bill Blair, mm-hmm. and uh, he started uh, with number 46 on September 11th, 1949 at Langhorne, Pennsylvania. Started uh, that race fourth and finished fifth in the race, but in column for number 46, all right, we had a little bit of a technical glitch there. Sorry about that. We apologize, but uh, we're back now here with the Lifetime and NASCAR podcast. And Ben White, you were telling us about the the first ever race of the number forty six car, and then we've got another good story coming up about the forty six and how it affected a future NASCAR Hall of Famer. But let's let's start with the first race of the number forty six car back in way back in nineteen forty nine. Yeah, that's correct, Jerry. Uh, a uh, gentleman by the name of uh, Bill Blair in High Point, North Carolina, ran the number 46 on September 11th, 1949 at Langhorne, uh, Pennsylvania. And uh, But as far as the winners of the in, in the number 46, that honor goes to Alfred Speedy Thompson with eight victories, followed by Jack Smith. He had two, and uh, Bob Welburn had one victory in the number 46, but you know what? There's a guy that we all know he is now uh, working as vice chairman of Hendrick Motorsports, but his name of course is Jeff Gordon. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course he's very familiar in the number 24, but originally when he came to the cup series in 1992, Hendrick Motorsports and team owner Rick Hendrick were looking at number 46 for uh, Jeff to run. And then they got to looking at some things and figured out that they couldn't run 46 because there was a problem with the days of thunder movie. And that number 46 had been licensed through paramount to uh, work in the movie. And they just simply couldn't run it because of a little contract issue there. Uh, I have seen photographs of the number 46 DuPont Chevrolet, and they just felt like it's probably going to be something they shouldn't do. And so they decided well, let's just go to number 24. Not sure where the 24 originated. However, there was a driver back in NASCAR history. His name was Cecil Gordon that ran number 24. No relation. No relation. Right, right, right. Yeah, no relation, but a great guy. He was a, ran a lot of NASCAR races in his career, and then he became a crew chief for several teams and also worked for Richard Childress for many years before his passing. But, uh, yeah, there was just some contractual issues and some licensing issues on the 46. And so they did not run 46. They went to 24, and the rest, as they say, is history. But Jeff carried that number to four Cup Series championships. So a little bit of a track fact uh, there for you that number 46 was going to go to Jeff, and it ended up being 24. 
you know, I'm looking at, uh, in, at racingreference.info and the 46 actually has made 470 starts, which I, I'm a little surprised. I'm trying to, I'm trying to look at, uh, I'm calling it up right now. And um, we're having some internet connections, but uh, problems, but um, you know, I, I'm trying to remember when was the last time I remember even seeing the 46 on a racetrack and then we're looking it up right now. And um you know what, though, Jerry, I, I will add one thing, though. Sure. Uh, Hendrick Motorsports did run 46 with Al Unser Jr. in the 1993 Daytona 500, and I think Buddy Baker also ran 46 for them in a race also. So they were able to run it a couple of times uh, for Hendrick Motorsports. But, yeah, Al Unser Jr. did run the number 46 in uh, 1993 at Daytona. Well, you know, I'm looking at, like I said, racing reference.info and uh, it's actually racing dash reference.info. And here's a guy who he kind of faded away uh, into obscurity. Uh, his last race in this, uh, in the number 46 was Michael Annette. He drove for several seasons, um, you know, uh, the number 46. And then Joey Gase, he ran the 46 in 2019 for one race at, at Kansas, his home track. So, mm -hmm. But, you know, the 46 has not been, uh, you know, um, uh, around for very long. But that whole Jeff Gordon story just you know, amazes me because, and I understand, I think, why, you know, it happened. Because, you know, when the movie came out, uh, I, I can't, I, memory serves me correctly, I think it was about 89 or 90, I think it was, something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, um, uh, the studios had some kind of a deal with NASCAR where uh, they had a number of years where, a NASCAR team could not use that number because of licensing and branding. And of course, souvenirs, you know, that's the, the mm -hmm. big thing. So, um, you know, I think that that expired, I think after five years, if I remember correctly, something like that, but you know, it's, I mean, I, I often wonder what would have happened to, you know, some of these drivers uh, if, if their numbers had been different, if Jeff Gordon had run the 46 instead of the 24, or if Dale Earnhardt would have ran, let's say the, the uh the eight instead of the three or if uh, you know if um rusty wallace would have run the 95 instead of the two you know i mean it, it just sometimes you wonder if uh, how nascar history would have changed if it would have changed because a lot of people put so much stock into you know race car numbers and a lot of other people say hey it's just a number we go with what we're given you know that kind of thing yeah oh yeah well it's just it's kind of interesting how that works out and and uh you know, how a particular conversations lead to drivers going with certain race teams. I've had drivers tell me in the past, absolutely, I will not drive for that particular guy. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And then three days later, you read in the paper that that particular driver is going to drive for that, <laughs> for that particular right. team owner. So, you know, it's, I understand that because they, they can't obviously let thing, the cats out of the bags until it's all you know, the, the I's are dotted, T's are crossed, that kind of thing. Sure, they can't. But, uh, yeah, it's just it's it's interesting how fate uh, works and, you know, how particular sponsors go with particular teams. And it's interesting how that all comes together. But, yeah, it's I've, I've wondered how, say, if a particular driver had gone with a particular team owner, say, Alan Kowicki, had he gone with Junior Johnson mm -hmm. like they had been talked right. about, or, or right. say, Dale Earnhardt had maybe gone with Junior Johnson. There was some serious talk about that working out. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a, a crash at, at Richmond, the old R Richmond racetrack uh, in uh, 1986, uh, where Dale Earnhardt and Daryl Waltrip got together on the last lap. It ended up being Kyle Petty's 
first victory. And mm-hmm. uh, there was some talk that, you know, maybe that might have been the reason why Dale Earnhardt didn't go with Junior because Junior was so upset about that crash. So little things like that on the racetrack, that wasn't so little, but little things happen and maybe that make drivers not go with a particular team owner. And uh, so that's how fate kind of has it worked out. But interesting how, how things do come together. It really is. And, you know, the one thing that I always um, think about when it comes to like numbers is, you know, how NASCAR allocates the numbers to various teams. I mean, obviously, you know, if you're, you know, um, Rick Hendrick, you're going to have the 24 for, you know, and for pretty much forever. I mean, you know, it's, it's rare that uh, NASCAR will take a number away from a team, especially a, a number that's, you know, very much established and is linked to one particular driver. Um, but, you know, the, the thing that also uh, surprises me is that I would think, and maybe I'm wrong in this perception of it, but, you know, when a driver comes into NASCAR cup uh, or, you know, for that matter, you know, you can, we can even extrapolate the argument into uh, Xfinity and also to the truck series as well. I've always believed that when a driver comes into the series as a full-time driver, and that is a, you know, a one-off or, you know, a part-time role or what have you, that he should be given a number for himself. In other words, um, you know, like, for example, like Kurt Busch, you know, he's had a number of car numbers, you know, in his time with Roush. And then, you know, when, um, you know, with uh, Ganassi and you know, now he's going to be at uh, XL23, you know, his, uh, you would think that the number he started off with, with Roush would have carried with him throughout his career. And because, you know, you, you see so many different number changes when drivers either change teams or teams go out of business. I mean, Dale Earnhardt Jr., you know, he was 88, then he became eight. Uh, I'm sorry, eight and then became 88 rather. And then, um, you know, it's just, I've always felt that if you're going to be a full-time driver and, you know, you're committed, your team is committed, you've got funding, you've got sponsorship, that the number should stay with you throughout your career. And I'm curious to get your take. You've been covering the sport for such a long time. I mean, what do you, what's your take about, about a number? Should it be allocated to the car? Should it be allocated to the driver? Um, I'm, I'm kind of a partial person the number should stay with the team and the and the car because there's so much uh movement over the years that i just always have felt that way but i mean you you get situations where it goes both ways you get like i say a jeff gordon in the 24 or you say a junior um, excuse me a jimmy johnson to get in the 48 Mm -hmm. they've they've had their entire careers with one particular number and and that can be associated with them then you get other drivers who have gone to various race teams. And, and oh, by the way, the, the reason that the 48 was uh, allocated to that team, not necessarily Jimmy, but that team is just they were trying to come up with a number for that team. And they said, well, what's the uh, what's double 24? It's 48. That's exactly why that car is is 48. Right. It's because that's the way they came up with it. But, um, yeah, to answer the question, I've just always been one to say, uh, leave the number with the team and then let the, let the driver f- fall where they will, uh, because it's just, it's a solid place for the, for, for the, the number to be with the team. That's just always been my opinion about it. 
Okay, that's fair. That's fair. All right, let's move on to our next segment here of the of episode number 46 of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. And that's one of our favorite uh, episodes or segments of the every week is the driver of the week. And even though we're in the middle of winter and you know we don't have a race uh, coming up in for at least for another three more weeks when we have the uh, Bush light clash at the LA Memorial Coliseum. And then, of course, the Daytona 500 on February 20th. But um, our driver of the week actually is a guy who won the Daytona 500 back in, I was, I want to say, what was it, uh, 2002, if my memory serves me correctly? I believe that's right, yes. Yeah, and not bad for a guy with a bad not memory. Not bad for, <laughs> yeah, not bad but, for, you're pretty good there, Jerry. That's right. Yep. Well, well, we're talking, of course, about Ward Burton, Jeff's older brother. And, you know, uh, Ben, you know, Ward had a very good career that he, um, uh, you know, in his time in NASCAR. And then he kind of paved the way a, l- a little bit for, you know, his brother, little brother, uh, Jeff. But at the same time, Ward also went on to establish a foundation, a animal um, uh, rights foundation. And, and, you know, he has really taken that to the all kinds of high levels. And that's become his number one passion, number one priority since he left racing. But tell us a little bit about, about Ward Burton, the, the race car driver. I mean, he was very well known. And, um, you know, he, he I, there were some instances in his career that I think he might have been able to win a few more races than he did. But it was either the situation he was in, the team he was in, the equipment he had. I mean, he's one of those kind of guys that he should have had more wins, and he didn't. Tell me about it. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, he's one of the nicest guys that you could possibly ever find anywhere. And I, and I tell you, that the funny thing about the funny thing about Ward and Jeff, and we asked Jeff this question one time, and you might have been in that group of folks when we were talking, but we talked to him on the media tour one time, and he said, and we asked him, said, Jeff, can you please, please, please explain to us why your accent is normal and his <laughs> accent is not. And he's right. got this, this Southern, you know, like such a different accent. And I'll try to mimic this accent. I'm not, my wife says I'm really good at accents, but I'm going to try really hard. And this is Jeff. Jeff is like, well, hello, I'm Jeff Burton. And this is what I do. And Ward Burton is like, well, let me tell you how this goes. This is you no, know, he's got such a sudden accent <laughs> like this. And he's he's so different than Jeff. And I said, Jeff, can you please tell us why there's a difference? And Jeff says, Well, all I can figure out is I grew up in the most northern part of the house, and Jeff grew up in the in the most southern part of the house. Because I, I mean, he sounds like where he needs to be is in the middle of a civil war movie. <laughs> And on a top of a horse as a Confederate general. Okay. Because I'm not kidding you. He talks like, well, this is the way we need to do this. Uh, you know, right, Jerry? I mean, he's yep. just got this very Southern, it, it, they're so, so different. And and it, it's not fake or anything. It's just this is the way Jeff. Talk, I mean, the way Ward talks. Right. Ward Burton is, talks just like this. You know, one of those. T- <laughs> well, you know. Tried to, I mean, it's so it's so different. And but he's. I mean, I love him dearly. Don't. I'm not trying to make fun of him. He just has such a different accent than Jeff does. And uh, but no kidding, he could be. I mean, it's amazing how different they they speak. And uh, but they. You know, they're just a few years apart and grew up in the same house and all, but you know, just a neat guy, right? I guess the Mason Dixon line was probably the kitchen. Jeff was in the north it, part of the house and, and and Ward was in the I, south part of the house, you know. I guess uh, you know, it's just amazing. It's like, well, what happened? He's like, I don't know. He just you know, somebody you know, somebody told me about this, and I'm 
I, I may be wrong, and I apologize if I say this about the wrong person, but I'm pretty sure Elliot Sadler was the one that told me this. Um, I'd asked, you know, I'd been covering NASCAR for about six, seven, eight years at that point. And I seem to recall asking, and I think it was Elliot, I'm pretty sure it was, uh, why were Jeff and um, Ward, you know, why, why their uh, vocal intonations were different? You know, Ward had the, uh, you know, very uh, significant Virginia accent, right. as opposed to uh, Jeff, who had, you know, kind of a run-of-the-mill Southern accent, you know, not, not right. super heavy, but, you know, not super light either. And I'm pretty sure that it was uh, um, was um, Elliot because he's from Virginia as well. And he did say that it had something to do with the state of Virginia. I mean, a lot of people that are from Virginia, that are nat- you know, national, yeah, can't even speak today, that are nat- uh, you know, um, natives of that state, they mm-hmm. have that very pronounced um, uh, intonation that Ward has. And you don't find that from people in any other state. I mean, you, you know, right, that's North true. Carolina, South Carolina, you don't have that same, it's almost like a, and I, and, uh, I don't think it was, uh, was, uh, Elliot that told me this one, but somebody else once said to me that Ward kind of spoke with the combination of a Southern accent with a Brooklyn accent. And that's how we already come up with the Virginia accent. Right. And then, yeah. you know, when well, I started thinking about that, that, that had a lot of, that had a lot of legitimacy in my mind. Right. You know, uh, Judy Dunlevy, who was a former, mm-hmm. uh, cup series owner, uh, and sad to say we, he has deceased now, but left him also. He just a really great Southern gentleman from Virginia, but he had that same dialect. He had that same Virginia, mm-hmm. uh, accent about him also. And there, are, I think I read one time, uh, someone told me this, there were like nine distinct Virginia accents in Virginia. Wow. And if, I, if I'm if i not mistaken, I believe that I'm correct to say that. Mm-hmm. But talking about Ward, though, he just has this very distinct Virginia accent and not making fun of him. He's just, he. it's, it's great to hear him talk. And, and, but you know, Talking about his career, though, he, he drove from 1994 to 2007, mm-hmm. 375 starts, he had five wins. Two of them came at Darlington. He won at Daytona. He won at Rockingham, and he won at Loudoun, New Hampshire. 24 top fives, 82 top tens, seven poles. He drove for Alan Dillard. He drove for Bill Davis and Gene Haas, three team owners. But he just, you know, like you said, he probably could have won more races, uh, but he had a, a very, very good career in the Cup Series. and But you absolutely could not find a nicer guy yep. as far as, you know, even to, I mean, now I, I actually ran into him in, in the infield at Daytona International Speedway. I guess it was maybe before all this COVID stuff. So it had to be 2019. Mm-hmm. And just walk into my car to get something out of the back of my car between practice sessions and he was standing there talking to someone and I hadn't seen him in several years and Hey Ben, how you doing? You know, just, we just struck up a great conversation Mm -hmm. and it's almost like we had um, picked up from like, you know, 2012 or 13 or something. He just hadn't changed a bit. He was just, you know, we talked about the, the, the animal rights thing you were talking about. We talked about how's the family, how's this? I mean, just a very down to earth guy. I just really enjoyed covering him when he was racing. And then when he stepped away, uh, he's been working with his son, you know, Jeb, 
uh, Burton, who's in the has been in the truck series, Xfinity series, uh, just very much involved in racing still, just not in the driver's seat. So, I mean, yeah, he's just a someone that you, he's the kind of guy that you could just kick back with a Coke or a soft drink or something and just say, how's it going? And yep. he would just, you know, very down to earth guy. I really like being around him. A lot of fun to talk to. And you know what? He also, a lot of people, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't know if a lot of people realize this, but he's really a funny guy, but it's, it's a dry, yeah. it's a dry wit. And, I, mm-hmm. and I'm, there's a story here. And, you know, if, if, um, if word listens to this podcast, I apologize. I'm not making fun of him by any way stretch, but he, he, it showed the dry wit probably better than anything that I or any yourself or any other reporter could do. If you remember about, uh, I want to say it was maybe five years ago, four or five years ago, he was working on his farm and he had some kind of a, um, an accident where I think it was barbed wire or something got into his forehead and his arm and he got cut up pretty bad, but it, you know, he, mm-hmm. he kept on working though. And that's the thing. And he took out, you know, he took a bunch of photos of himself, put it out on Twitter. And he, and he said, well, like, you know, this kind of thing happened. And, you know, he, he just showed that, you know, he was, he was tough. He was not going to let this thing bother him. And, you know, I, I, I laughed when I first saw it, and I'm sure a lot of people there, you know, read what, how he wrote it. I mean, the way he wrote, I don't remember exactly how it was, but the way he wrote, um, you know, what happened to him, it was just such a dry wit. And it's like, well, okay, this happened, but you know, I just move on, you know, that kind of thing. And right. that got so many such such reaction from the NASCAR world, a positive reaction as well, too. But you know, he just, you know, Jeff has a great sense of humor, his younger brother, but Ward just he's got a great sense of humor. You get to know him, you get to talk to him, yeah, and you you hear that dry wit. It's 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 really a unique kind of situation. Yeah, yeah. He's just a I, I said it, but he's just a really neat guy, and he's not somebody one of the Daytona 500. Uh, and he, he's won several races, but I mean, he's the kind of guy I'd slip on a pair of jeans and a t-shirt. And yep. if you say, you know, I need you to come help me do something. He said, where do you live? I'll be there. He's just one of those guys. I mean, he's just, he's just a very down to earth sort of guy to help you out. If you ask him and you'd never, if you didn't know who he was, he, you know, you wouldn't know that he was a superstar race car driver. Yep. He was just I love those types of people that would not rub it in your face that I'm a star. I'm a great guy. I did this and that he's very humble about what he's accomplished. And, and that's the types of people that I would, I enjoy being around that they've accomplished a lot in their careers, but we don't rub it in your face. And that's right. very humble, very well, good guy. And to, to follow it up, Ben, you know, when you do talk to word these days, he really doesn't talk much about racing. I mean, you almost have to, mm-hmm. I don't want to say pull it out of him, but I mean, he's very private. You know, he, he, when you talk to him about what he's doing these days or what's his thoughts about, you know, the, uh, the, the world of racing or what have you, he invariably more so than any time thing will probably start talking about his wildlife foundation first, before he even starts talking about NASCAR. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know he's still, you know, like you said, he maintains a, a pretty close connection with NASCAR with his, you know, due to his son, Jeb, but, but he's just not, um, you know, he, he, he's shown that there's more to life for him than NASCAR and that, that the wildlife foundation, which he started before, you know, during his career, uh, has really taken on uh, a significant role. It's his passion. And he's really done a, a, a lot of good with that foundation as well, too. Yeah, I think so. And I think you find that with, uh, say Terry Labonte and yep. you find it with Bill Elliott, mm-hmm. you find it with guys that have had their chapters in NASCAR, uh, that have been very successful. And even talking to Bill said, do you offer Chase any advice? He said, no, not really, because 
his his time in racing is different from my time. The cars are different. The mm-hmm. timing's different. And I've had a very successful career that I'm thankful for, but I can't really offer Chase a lot because everything's so different. Same thing with Ward, same thing with Terry. And, uh, you know, they, they've enjoyed their time, but it's, they're also, it's okay for them to maybe step back and enjoy the memories, but it's a different world now. And, um, yeah, but, and they're very thankful for what they did, but they, they keep an eye on it, but it's not exactly the way it used to be. So same with Ward. He's, he's had a lot of fun with it, but yeah, he wants to see Jeb do well and, you know, he'll offer, some advice if it fits, but the puzzle pieces of his career don't fit the puzzle pieces of where Jeb is today because so much is different. Right. But if the one little piece of the puzzle fits, yeah, he'll offer some advice. But uh he he enjoy I mean I think all these guys enjoy being part of the sport if they can offer a little bit, sure. But exactly yeah, it's yeah, for sure. Okay. Before we get to our last segment of the show, I got to go back to the previous segment about uh, the number 46 car. Cause I forgot to ask you a question and yeah. I'm going to put you on the spot here. So be ready now. Okay. okay. All right. All right. Oops. Okay. Right. So we are going to see the sequel to top gun coming out this year. It was delayed. It was supposed to come out actually in 2020. Then it was supposed to come out in 2021. Now it's supposed to come out sometime this year with Tom Cruise, you know, reprising his role. Uh, you know, uh, uh, he's a flight instructor for, uh, you know, for the, uh, was it the Air Force or Navy, whatever, uh, I guess it was Navy, wasn't it? Yeah, Navy, that's right. Uh, he is a naval, a naval aviator 30 years later. Well, my question to you, Ben, and I know there's been a lot of rumors about this. There's been a lot of talk and, you know, um, I talked uh, to, uh, what was his name? Uh, Michael, um, oh God, the guy that played Rowdy uh, in, in Days of Thunder. Michael, I'm losing, I can't think of his last name, uh, a couple of years back. And there was talk, you know, he said that there has been a lot of talk about doing a sequel to Days of Thunder. Uh, apparently there's a, there's a script at least written or was in the process of being written. What do you think? Do you think we'll ever see a Days of Thunder sequel? And to, to you know, join that question, could there be a storyline that you may maybe perhaps envision that could happen? I mean, if we see, you know, Tom Cruise, you know, maybe as the successor to, you know, to Rick Hendrick or whatever, you know, uh, uh, or whomever, I mean, do you ever, do you see this maybe seen a success, a, a sequel to days of thunder at some point? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, uh, you know, in a world right now where we're trying to attract a younger group of people to come to NASCAR, a lot of folks that are in that group today look at at Days of Thunder as being a, a great movie, and in a lot of respects, it was. Mm-hmm. There's some things about Days of Thunder that I would like to see them change if they did a sequel. One of which is uh, a little better on, you know, not going down the front stretch at Atlanta and through the turns at Wilkesboro and down the back stretch <laughs> at Darlington. That would help. Right. But, you know, other than, you know, that, I'd like to see them correct that. But, yeah, I mean, you could see a Tom Cruise maybe being a, um, you know, in in a role of uh, a team owner, possibly, uh, you know, and in, in trying to help some young up-and-coming drivers. Some of the, you know, like, for instance, a Robert Duvall, uh, mm-hmm. of course, maybe maybe being some type of mentor or, uh, something to that effect, you know, uh, he's too old to be a crew chief now, of course, but he could possibly uh, maybe be there to help serve in some way to to help some younger folks. I mean, yeah, there it's very doable to make, to have a sequel to it. 
But I mean, some of the things that were wrong with Days of Thunder and some of the young folks don't pick up on it was some of the mechanics of the, the movie just didn't float. And mm-hmm. and if you compared the um, that movie to a Top Gun, I mean, this it's pretty close <laughs> when it comes to the scripts, really. Right. Right. And in all honesty, uh, not to burst any bubbles here, but I mean, I'd always heard that the that the, the the days of thunder were supposed to be really more of a Tim Richmond movie. Right. Right. And then right. Tim Richmond got into some health issues and AIDS and all that was not something understood in 18, 1989 and 90. And then that kind of a taboo situation then, and, and it had to be rewritten in a hurry. And that the same writer who did both movies, you know, the scripts are close. And so that's, the way I understand some of that going down. So yes, to answer your question, if there was a sequel to Days of Thunder, I think it would be very popular with with a lot of folks, especially the younger folks. Yes. Right. Well, you know, I was thinking of the I couldn't think of his last name, Michael Rooker, who played Rowdy Burns. Yeah, right. You, know, yeah. you mentioned you mentioned um, um, uh, Robert Duvall. Now he's ninety years old, and you would think that you know, his acting days are over. There really aren't. And I I put him in the same category as Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood just came out with a movie uh, about a month or no, a couple months ago. And it's, uh, was it macho something or a macho something or other where he Mm -hmm. was down in Mexico, 91 years old. He not only started, he also directed it. So, you know, if they do have a uh, a script ready and a sequel, they would like to do a sequel for for Days of Thunder. I totally agree with you. Let's get Robert Duvall in there because yeah. I mean, well, he, I, he, he was one of the biggest stars in that movie, in my opinion. And absolutely, and I will say this: in all honesty, Robert Duvall nailed Harry Hyde as yes. far as playing him. Right. I mean, you could not find anybody closer to Harry Hyde than Harry Hyde. I mean, he really did an excellent job if, of playing him in the movie and his mannerisms, his uh, everything about what he did to portray Harry Hyde was dead on. And don't get me wrong. There were some good parts about Days of Thunder. I just thought that some of the things that were done in it took away from the movie. And, and if they do a second one, they need to, like I say, work on the mechanics of it because there were some that's what took away from the movie is like I said, going down the front stretch at one track and coming through the turns in another track and the back stretch at another track. <laughs> and I mean, if you're going to do it, make it realistic and make it like the, there were parts of the movie, like working in a barn that would didn't have, we were way past that when the movie came out and, and riding in the back of the transporter yep. on the highway, those thing, types of things didn't happen. So get someone in there that would really do a nice job of, of, of making sure that the movie is accurate and then then you'll have a great movie. But if that fans are not stupid, they they know they're racing and they know those types of things aren't true. And uh, then you'll have a wonderful movie and a great script and you'll have a hit. But that's the, and all the work that you do on a movie, the little things in a movie script like that's what's going to kill it for you. And that's I think that's what took away from Days of Thunder. It's just my opinion. Right. Well, you know, and, and the other thing, too, and I know we got to wrap up the, the show here, but, um, you know, let's definitely not definitely not have if there is going to be a Days of Thunder sequel, let's not have John Gerard come in or, or will, you know, or will Farrell come in and reprise his role from Talladega no. Nights. I mean, you know, let's make it like you say, let's make it a legitimate action movie. And, you know, you mentioned about Robert Duvall you know, uh, being, you know, a spot on um, uh 
character actor, you know, following in Harry Hyde's role. I mean, how much closer can you get to Harry Hyde with the guy whose name in the movie was Harry Hogg? You know, I mean, it was pretty close. You right. know, so but right. but I, I I I would like to see, you know, hopefully we will see a Days of Thunder, um, you know, a a um, you know another you know a sequel, if you will. Hopefully by maybe 2024, 2025, because I think the movie came out, I think in 79. So 25 or no, it'd be, um, it'd be what, uh, uh, 35 years. Yeah. I guess it'd be 35 years yes. in 2024. So maybe they, maybe they might get this thing going. I mean, if Top Gun 2, you know, becomes a big hit, maybe we can convince Tom Cruise to get that right. uh, and, going. And I'll say this quickly, Jerry, sure. for whatever reason, we've had movies that have come that have been made since 1949, 50, uh, many, many movies about, about racing, auto racing. And there's only been a couple that really hit the mark. One uh, was, uh, of course, uh, 1969, the movie was called Winning with Paul Newman. Right. It was right. based on uh, winning the Indianapolis 500. They did have some NASCAR stock car stuff in there. That was really pretty accurate, pretty good. Yeah. The second one came out in 1973, and it was Jeff Bridges. Uh, and it was uh, The Last American Hero yes. based on Junior Johnson. Those two movies were pretty dead-on accurate. Everything else from 49 to, say, Days of Thunder really did not hit the mark. And mm -hmm. there was one, uh, I mean, they've, there's been a ton. There's, they're all over the map. And they just really were not very, very good because like Hollywood, for some reason, thinks they got to do it wrong when it comes to auto racing. <laughs> right, right. And they just really, they want to Hollywood these up and they don't have to. There's enough action in these movies to make them great. They don't need to do it wrong. But those two movies I mentioned, Winning and Last American Hero, were pretty close. And if they could just get it right, then they would have a hit. And that's all I want to say. <laughs> well, I'm going to throw this at you because you just right. sparked something in my mind. I know we're going a little off, off uh, a little long here, but I got to say, ask you this. All right. So let's say you and I are going to put together a script for Days of Thunder 2, just hypothetically. We're going to be totally yeah. accurate. We're going to be sticklers for detail. What about this as a storyline? Tom Cruise becomes, um, you know, the, the Rick Hendrick of today. Mm -hmm. And Michael Rooker, who played Rowdy Burns, becomes, let's say, the... Um, um, let's say who else would I, who would I own? Let's say, he, 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 well, this is probably kind of a stretch, but the Joe Gibbs of, of the, his, is it this era today? Not what so about bad. those two guys, those two guys as owners fighting it out. And you have two young up and coming drivers for each of them. One, you know, Cruz gets a one young up and coming driver and uh, Michael Rooker, uh, you know, AKA Roddy Burns has a, uh, young up and coming driver. There's your storyline right there. The two owners yeah, fighting perfect. out, you know, that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. But you need to get a neurologist. That's not <laughs> 22 years old. You know, that, that would help. That's right? right. That's right. Yeah. And I mean, that would help. I mean, she needs to be at least 35. She needs to finish medical school before <laughs> she becomes a neurologist. Right. right. I mean, right. Uh, just little things, just that's little right. things. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, that your your storyline would work well, and um, yeah, I mean th that's very very doable. And there, you got to remember that Tom Cruise by now this is 30 years later. Okay. Yep. So if it's going to be a sequel, he's he's got a hundred car dealerships and he's 60 years old. <laughs> I mean, he's not. He can't. You know what I mean? You gotta you gotta follow the line. That's all I'm saying. That's right. Exactly. Be reasonable. Be realistic about what you're 
be real, be race fans, make a movie as a race fan or something, you know, your know your subject. It's like me trying to do a movie about ice hockey. It would fail. I know nothing <laughs> about ice hockey. I just know nothing. Know your subject. It's the, that's it. I'm sorry. That's all I'm saying. As the old saying goes, be realistic about your expectations. There you go. Exactly. There <laughs> all you right. Go. All right, we're coming around. We're coming out of turn four. We're actually five feet from the finish line. It's going to be a photo finish. We're going to have the final segment of the uh, Lifetime in NASCAR podcast, episode number 46. And it's another one of our favorite features of the week, the track of the week. And Ben, we, you had to dig back for this one. And, you know, I never, actually, I'll be honest, I never heard of this track, but it had a great history for the brief time that it was around. Yes, sir. And it was Raleigh Speedway in Raleigh, North Carolina. And uh, it was actually, if you can imagine, the same size as Dover Speedway, Dover, Delaware, one mile in length. And it was from about 1953 to about 1958. And it had some great races there, uh, a paved speedway. And uh, it, it, was a, it was a really good racetrack. And uh, if you think, well, wow, I mean, it's sort of like in an era where you had Darlington Raceway and, and uh, a little bit before Darling, or excuse me, um, Daytona International Speedway. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and, and we've seen this happen before where, you know, you have racetracks that spring up like Ontario Motor Speedway and some others that maybe there were great to have uh, in in nascar but they just possibly came at the wrong time but not actually 1952 to 1958 mm-hmm. uh and it sort of um set as it's uh, as it was it sort of sat dar- dormant for a while after 1958 it was demolished in 1967 but um it was a, a beautiful racetrack it just didn't survive economically and uh, you had some people like uh you know, Tim Flock and Fonnie Flock and some big names that ended up winning there, but uh, it just didn't survive. But it was a one mile speedway in Raleigh, North Carolina. And, I'm, uh, sure. oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it just it didn't survive uh, economically and was eventually taken away and torn down. I'm curious now because the their last race was in 58 and Daytona International Speedway opened in 59, could the opening of Daytona, even though there was not a direct involvement, could that have perhaps led to a track like, um, you know, Raleigh Speedway closing up shop because this new bright two and a half mile super speedway was opening up, you know, four or 500 miles south of there. Uh, did that have did, any, did Daytona's op- opening have any impact on places like Raleigh or other tracks? Cause we know we've talked about other tracks that, you know, were around in the fifties and then they kind of, you know, went, went away in the either late in the fifties or into the early sixties. And then of course, like you said, like you had Ontario, you had Richmond in the seventies and eighties, they went away, but I'm curious, did the tracks like Raleigh, were they potentially impacted by what the potential of Daytona international speedway was going to become and that may have led to their closing. Well, it's possible, but I think the one thing that really uh, was the detractor of Raleigh Speedway, believe it or not, was noise complaints uh, that uh, the city council and and neighbors around the track, they just didn't like the fact that the track was so noisy. Mm -hmm. And uh, voting uh, eventually was the thing by residents around the track that took it away. But... uh, 
you know, as I said, some just to give you some uh, history about some of the drivers that won there, Troy Rutman, a brother of Joe, Joe Rutman, who drove mm-hmm. in the Cup Series for many years, won there uh, in 1952. Fonte Flock, Herb Thomas won a couple there. Uh, Fireball Roberts was the winner there in 1956. Paul Goldsmith in 57. And then Fireball Roberts won the gear there again in 58 before the track closed. But uh, yeah, it's just, um, it was basically in, in the Raleigh vicinity there. And, uh, I guess it just wasn't well received, uh, as, as much as the people that, uh, in the, in the town that wanted it, where I guess Daytona looked at Daytona International Speedway as being, uh, an economic boom for them more so than what Raleigh did, but, from what I understand, it was a beautiful racetrack and and nicely built, like I say, a mile in length, and and it just wasn't accepted as well in Raleigh as, it, as say Daytona was in Daytona Beach. No, that's too bad. That's too bad. Yeah. Well, Ben, we've had a he- another heck of a show. We keep on topping ourselves each week, and that's getting a little bit more difficult. It's putting the pressure on us, but we're doing great. We're doing fantastic. <laughs> well, so we're having fun. We definitely we can, are. Just, we definitely are. That's so. the thing. We just have a lot of fun doing these and. Uh, uh, you know, and that's that we have plans that we do, and then things just pop up, and we talk about other things. So exactly. That's where the that's where the fun comes from. That's right. The ad living, the winging it, as I like to call it. But yeah, we yeah. And, and and you're right. I mean, and we really do have a lot of fun. So hopefully the uh, the the listeners really enjoyed this episode. We're going to have episode number forty seven next week, and I'm not going to tell you, but we got a lot of drivers that have driven the forty seven. So we'll be talking about that as well. Mm-hmm. And um, hope everybody had a great uh, holiday weekend or holiday period, you know, Christmas and New Year's and et cetera. And uh, we got a great uh, 2022 ahead of us, hopefully for everybody, not just in the racing world and in NASCAR, but also for hopefully for all of our personal lives as well and get through this COVID uh, situation. And uh, hopefully by the end of the year, we'll be be in good shape. So so for Ben White, I'm Jerry Bunkowski. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. We'll be back with episode number 47 next week. Thanks again also to Josh Mull, our our producer. And you take care, everyone. Have a good week. And we'll catch you in a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast next week. Take care, everyone. Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. 
Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at ForneyIND.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, IND, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.